Good morning. How's everyone? Good, good. Thank you, Wayne. It's good to hear you're starting off the year that way. It's good. Well, I guess we're ending the year, aren't we? And the tie. Yep, it's good. Um, turn to the book of James. We're returning back to that. What's it been, like three or four weeks since we've been in James? Feels like. Um, in light of that, we'll be looking at verse uh, 27 um, of chapter 1. So we're closing out chapter 1 this morning. If you're visiting here today, um, there's outlines. This one's pretty detailed. So if you're not used, used to listening to me, which isn't always easy probably, but if you're not, the outline should help you follow along pretty well. But um, So for just a minute, it's January 31st, right? For a moment, um, fast forward with me to July 1st. July 1st. Why July 1st? Why do you think? Because by July 1st, half the year will be behind us, right? And so imagine it's July 1st, sunny outside. It's probably sunny outside anyway, but it's July 1st, and you're cleaning something. You're cleaning up wherever you clean your house, your desk, your car, you know, whatever you clean up. And you, as you're cleaning up, you pull out a piece of paper, and it's, it's older, and so you blow off the dust. You straighten it out. You open it. You look at it, and it says... New Year's resolutions for 2024. And on the list, you, you see things like eat better and lose 10 pounds, exercise more frequently throughout the week, read the 2,700 books that Kiefer suggested this year, be more patient. Um, and so in July, it's July 1st, you look at this list, and how do you feel? Probably guilty, right? If you're like me in New Year's resolutions, oftentimes. You think, I haven't done very well. I've actually gained 10 pounds, not lost 10 pounds. Um, so this year's scrapped. So next year. Next year will be the year. Um, well, look, McDonald's. But anyway, um, how many of you have felt that way? Is it primarily most of the years that you make resolutions or half the years or less than half the years that you make resolutions? You sort of approach it like, like that. A couple of thoughts for when July 1st hits and you find that list. First, it's most likely going to happen that you'll realize that you didn't keep everything on your list. Maybe you're one of those super committed, super focused people who keeps your lists. Sunny's like that. She absolutely loves lists. She'll say something different, but that's what she does, actually. I'm in the pulpit. I have to say the truth. She loves lists. One year, she decided that she was going to do one of those things. It's not a bike, but you... you you run on it, but your arms are going like this. Huh? Elliptical. That's what it is. It's not a skier, Wayne. It's a, an elliptical. Anyway, I could, and she did it like crazy. I could hear her in the room, and she was running like a mad woman. Seriously, my kids will attest to this. You know, sweat was flying, hitting the wall, and calories were burning all over the place. Um, and it made me feel guilty. Um, but now, her shoulders are in constant pain, and our witch doctor, I mean the chiropractor, um, can't even help her now. And so she has to use eight pillows to support her at night just so she can sleep. So let that be a lesson to you when you make your New Year's resolutions. But we're likely going to fail at some point on one or two items of our list, and de you know, depending what they are. 
And when that day comes, remember this. Your position in Christ is not determined by how many items on your resolution list that you keep. Your place before God is set and sealed because Jesus kept his list perfectly. So his resolution list, an example, Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. Consequently, Christ came into the world. He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, then Jesus said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the books. There's his list. I have come to do your will, O God. And he did it. He kept it. He kept it perfectly. He perfectly obeyed the law, observed the law, perfectly kept the law. He perfectly died on the cross for us who did not. He did it perfectly. And by grace through faith, here's a miracle, mind-boggling thing that we accept by faith, but still so hard to understand. By grace through faith, God sees us through that lens. He sees us through the lens of His Son, Jesus Christ, because by grace through faith, Christ imputes His righteousness to us. And so God the Father looks at us and sees one who perfectly kept the law, even though we haven't. It's, it's amazing. Um, so um, don't be a moralist and think that your year is scrubbed because you don't keep everything on your list. And conversely, if you're a hyper-committed, hyper-disciplined, super-focused list keeper, don't be a legalist and think that now because you've kept your list, everything's all right. Whoever you are, the super-failure or the super-keeper, um, be encouraged by Christ's obedience. And so that's where it's at for us as Christians. Jesus kept his resolution, resolution list, and in him we rest. He's our Sabbath. And so that's the first thing to remember on July 1st when you look at your list and you see that you didn't keep them all. Secondly, as you think about Christ and his perfect obedience on our behalf, let his obedience be the motivation for our own. So let Christ and his perfect obedience um, to live and be more like him be the motivation. That, that's how Christian growth works. Resting in Christ for our position before God results in humility and joy and gratitude, which are three essential attitudes for us to have in order to follow in our life after Christ to live like him. So Paul says it in Galatians 2 this way, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul is grateful for huge realities. Christ died for me, he says, and Beyond that, bigger than even that, Christ lives in me. Maybe not bigger than that, but more amazing to sort of wrap your head around. Christ lives in me. And so Paul's response to that is faith in Christ who loved him and died for him. And that faith in Christ and that belief and that resting in Christ and, motive, and, and pondering or meditating upon Christ, um, is that, that's the spiritual air in his spiritual lungs that motivates him and enables him to live like Christ. So when July 1st hits, don't think next year's the year. Think today is the day. The date doesn't matter. And if you stumble a little bit, say, Christ kept his list for me, and out of gratitude, again, today is the day. Which is one thing I found interesting about the resolution list that most Christians read at least once in their life, and that's the list of, of Jonathan Edwards. Um, but his were not New Year's resolutions. They were life resolutions. And so there's one that sort of portrays that to us. Resolved, never to do anything 
which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Did you hear it? Resolved never to do, not just this year, but resolved never to do until it's the last breath in my, in my, of my life. Um, I don't have a problem with, with New Year's resolutions, with daily resolutions. Um, I've made them. I've kept a couple of them. But let your yearly resolutions sit under lifetime resolutions. Let your yearly, daily, monthly, weekly, whatever it is, resolutions be supportive of the lifetime ones. So what does all that have to do with James? Well, James so far in chapter 1 has been giving us lifetime resolutions or lifetime goals. So we're just going to sort of backtrack just a little bit and cover that. It's been a while since we've looked at James. So lifetime resolution number one, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. That's verse 2 of James chapter 1. So follow along with your eyes as I go through these verses. So yes, we're going to hit some trials this year. You may be in the midst of a trial even right now. When it happens, remember that God sovereignly brings our trials into our life for good to make us more like Christ, or as James says, to make us perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. And so that's a lifetime resolution. Consider your trials throughout your life as things that are worthy of joy because of why God brings them and what God does with them. So do we need help with that? Of course. And so lifetime resolution number two, ask God for wisdom. That's verse five of chapter one. So remember that the wisdom that God's going to give you is not like how to make the right decision when we're trying to decide between two cars or two jobs or things like that. We can pray to God for that. But as chapter 3, verse 17 defines wisdom, it's practical. It's how to live in the midst of trials or not trials. So God's wisdom will enable you then to be pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Lifetime resolution number two. Now, lifetime resolution number three, uh, verses 9 through 11. Boast in Christ. That's kind of a summary of verses 9 through 11. If you're poor, poverty doesn't change your standing before God. If you're in Christ, then you have all the riches in heaven, even if you have nothing to eat. If you're rich, boast in Christ, not your money. God's not impressed with your money. It's all going to pass away anyway. Lifetime resolution number four, persevere when trials hit. And so see resolution number one. Lifetime resolution number five, remember that your temptation to sin comes from within you, not from God. And that temptation followed in producing sin can lead to death. So don't take temptation lightly. That's verses 13 through 15 of chapter 1. So lifetime resolution number 6, everything, and so all caps, everything that is good comes from God. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't come because of your hard work. It doesn't because you've earned something or deserved something. It comes from a good God who has graciously given you something good despite what you deserve. And so remember that. That's grace, amazing grace, verses 16 through 17. Lifetime resolution number seven, remember that it took all the same creative power to bring you forth from death to life as it took for God to bring everything in creation out of nothing. That's the language that James uses in verse 18. God brought you forth, just like he brought, God brought the universe into existence forth. So don't ever forget that. You didn't just do what other people could do if they were as smart as you or as good as you. No, that's junk. Don't buy that. God alone brought you forth in the same way that he brought forth the universe out of nothing. Remember that because that will help you with those three attitudes you desperately need in order to follow after Christ that I talked about before, before humility, joy, and gratitude. Lifetime resolution number eight, be quick to hear and slow to speak because 
Good memory. It's look in a mirror and count your ears and then count your mouth. You have two ears, you have one mouth. So listen more, talk less. Um, and then also um, kill anger. That's verses 19 through 20. In fact, don't just kill anger. Um, kill all sin. That's lifetime resolution number 9, verse 21. Lifetime resolution number 10, be doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word. Verses 22 through 25, so that's how you do lifetime resolution number 9. Lifetime resolution number 11, bridle your tongue. Lifetime resolution number 12, visit orphans and widows and other people who have it particularly hard. So pay attention to what's going on around you. That's the, 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 uh, a great lifetime resolution for you. Pay attention to what's going on in the lives of others. And then don't just sit there and watch them. Go visit them. Visit them, pray with them, hug them, weep with them, read with them, point them to Christ. So those are the first 12 lifetime resolutions from the book of James that we've covered so far. I think I, I got them all. But now we're looking at number 13. Keep oneself unstained from the world. Now it's just six words. Keep oneself unstained from the world. And so we're going to take a look at this from lots of different angles. Um, but remember, this is in the context of the pure religion. So the pure religion exists in this, that you go and visit those who have it particularly hard and you keep yourself unstained from the world. And so you are intimately engaged with those who are around you and you are striving for holiness. And so we're going to look at that, what it means for us to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And in closing, because it's January 31st, I'm going to write your resolutions for you. These will be yours for the rest of the year. Well, there'll be one lifetime resolution and there will be some under it that, you, that are, well, they're all lifetime. I'm just going to write them all for you forever. You have to do these. I'm just kidding. Anyway, first question is, what is the world? This seems obvious, right? Don't be stained by the world. Keep yourself unstained from the world. But let me throw this in there just to help us understand it better. John 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So, don't be stained by the world that God loved so much that he gave his son for them. Is that what we're to understand? That sounds like a contradiction. We're supposed to love what God loves. But it's not a contradiction. Um, and it's not too hard to unravel. And it's in this. The word world in the Bible doesn't always mean the same thing. And so sometimes world means universe. Like everything in the created universe. Like Pluto, which is a planet. Right? Is it? Some people say star. It's ridiculous. Anyway, sometimes uh, world means universe. Sometimes world means earth, like the earth that we dwell on. Sometimes earth, a world means humanity, which is the meaning in John chapter 3.16. Sometimes world means world system, which is the, the way that, that James is referring to it. It's a system of thoughts and values and attitudes and priorities that are opposed to God, that are opposed to God's rule, and that are opposed to His Son. And so again, that's what we're talking about in James chapter 1, and it's what John talks about in the passage that Evan read from earlier in John chapter 2. Again, let me read it. Do not love the world. Just listen to how John says we should respond to this world system of thoughts and values and attitudes and priorities that are opposed to God. So do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. There are huge consequences here, ramifications for us to consider. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John is saying, don't love 
that world that's opposed to God. In fact, we could say, hate that world. Hate the world of thoughts and values and attitudes and priorities that are opposed to God and His rule. Hate that world. So, hate the world that the rich young ruler loved so much that he could not follow after Christ. Or hate the, the world that Paul coveted prior to becoming saved, coveting everything. Romans chapter 7. But love the world that God loves. So, John 3.16, love your neighbors as yourself. Matthew 22, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Luke 6. So, so we get it, right? A good understanding of what world means in various verses lead us to the conclusion that we are to both love and hate the world, depending on which world is being referred to. And so we love the world that God loves, man, and we hate the world that God hates. Hate the world that hates God. Understanding this is really fundamental for us living out our lifetime goals. So the world is the system of thoughts and values and priorities that are opposed to God. That's a good definition, but, but what does that mean? What does that look like? It's any system of thought. It's any value system. It's any priority that makes man the focus and relegates God to the fringes. In a word, it's secularism. And that's the world. It's not new. It's not a modern concept. It's been the overarching characteristic of the world ever since the fall of Adam in the garden. In every period that followed Adam in the garden and his fall, the overarching characteristic has been to live life and define reality apart from God. Apart from God. This is the great threat that we face. It's not gay marriage. It's not transgenderism or identity dysphoria. It's not all the things that we can think of and and think about the, that we fight against and that we rail against and that we, we lament, and we do lament them. We lament them because all of those things are opposed to God. All of those things are opposed to the will of God. All of those things are opposed to the rule of God, to the Son of God. But they are outworkings of the greater problem that makes man the focus and pushes God to the edge. And so it's wherever me becomes the authority on what is good. most ridiculous statement you can hear is your truth. Live your truth. What is your truth? It's wherever our contentment is measured by, you deserve this, you deserve that, you deserve better. It's wherever here and now is treasured more than heaven and eternity. It's wherever happiness is placed above obedience. And so the world that is opposed to God makes man's glory their chief end, truly. What man thinks is best for man what man thinks makes man the happiest. That's the standard for evaluating how to order everything in the world. Work, education, entertainment, relationships. It's all about man. It's all about now. It's never about God. And it's never about eternity. And it's presented to us as just the normal way to live and to think and to love. The world's goal is to make evil look normal. Through constant and regular messaging, it says, this is just the normal way to view sex. This is just the, the normal way to understand marriage. This is just the normal way to view children. This is just the normal way to think about what's best in education. This is just the normal way to prioritize anything, everything. It's all just normal. And they normalize it through 
through television or entertainment and, and internet and many schools, universities. But mostly they normalize this junk in just everyday conversation. I hear it every time I go into a coffee shop. Every single time. And most of the coffee shops that I go to are run by churches. I've been asked to leave a Christian coffee shop because I spoke the Bible to people who were confused. All this normalized worldliness is affecting the church. It's influencing the church. I saw a clip of a church church in Tennessee that was apologizing for how Christians treat their transgender siblings. By siblings, they mean fellow Christians. <laughs> now, certainly, we have siblings that have disorders called gender dysphoria. Certainly, we do. And the church should love them, speak the truth to them, but not hate them by affirming them. We don't have transgender siblings who actively live out and promote a lie. There are professing believers who gather together with this kind of thinking and call themselves a church. They're stained by the world. There are some churches who have decided that they won't mention sin any longer because it's just too depressing, and people come to church to feel good about themselves. That's what it's all about. That's here in Charlotte, the largest probably church in Charlotte. They're stained by the world. These are churches and preachers, churches and preachers, who've opted for loving the world rather than God. It's more attractive to others. It helps us fit in better. Whatever. This being stained by the world system of thought is such a danger. The Bible constantly warns us and commands us to not follow this course. James says, don't be stained by the world. Paul says, do not be conformed to the world. John says, do not love this world. All three are essentially saying the same, same thing. And so what does keep oneself unstained from the world mean? Well, first, it means that, that true believers are already separated from the world. Listen to the reading of that. Keep or maintain your unstainedness. Keep or maintain your separateness. And so it's, it's like that Christian phrase we've probably heard many times, probably said many times, in the world but not of the world. Now, it's not a Bible verse, by the way, but it's I think it's sound, and it's taken from actually John chapter 17, verses 14 through 19. You can go back and read it, but in that passage, Jesus says of the world, um, uh, of believers, I'm sorry, of, of those who are his, um, they are not of the world in the same way that I am not of the world. It, it's, it's, the, it's the same as being strangers and aliens in this world. This world is, is not our home. Then Jesus says, I have sent them into the world. <laughs> so that's what it means, not of the world, but in the world. It's not of the world, but sent into the world. Really, um, and so the idea is not that we've, you know, we become monks and isolate ourselves from all people outside of us who don't le- think like we do. It doesn't mean that we, re- we remove all technology from our homes and we go off the grid, <laughs> completely separated. No, Jesus sends us into the world that we might glorify God, and that we might tell those people about Jesus. So how are we not of the world? How are true believers separate from the world? And here I want to take just a few minutes. It's the last sermon of the year. I can take two hours if I want to. 
I want, I want to take just a few minutes, though, to show what the Bible says about how we are separate from the world or how we become separated from the world already. I want to do this so that we have raise our thinking about what it means to be separate, about what it means to be distinct and what it means to strive to be unstained from the world. And so I want to raise our thoughts just a little bit. So how are we not of the world? Five ways. First, election. God has chosen us out of the world. And so Jesus says essentially the same thing in John chapter 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people that you gave me out of this world. People that Jesus is talking about are the elect, we could say the church. The Father didn't give all people to Jesus and say, die for all people. If that were the case, then all people would become saved or are saved or would become saved. Every single one because John tells us and John... Or, yeah, Jesus tells us in John chapter 6 that everyone that the Father has given to the Son comes to Him. That everyone that hears the Father comes to Jesus. Every single one. And so if it's for everybody in the world, then everybody would be saved. But of course, that's not the case. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the earth. And so before God created anything, when all there was was the Trinity... God chose all the elect apart from the world and gave them to his son. That's an absolutely beautiful description of how we first become separated from the world. Secondly, calling or effectual call. I think it's in your notes. So Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. So way back in the past, before time, God chose us. But in time, God calls us. And it's not the same way that I call you. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, every Sunday I call upon unbelievers to believe the gospel. If this is your only way of salvation, you must come to Christ. And I plead with you because there's no salvation outside of that. But I can't cause you to do it. I can't make you do it. I can't make you believe the gospel. But God can and God does and that's why we believe and so God speaks to us and he calls us and as he calls us he gives us life you were dead in your trespasses and sin but God made us alive together in Christ he gives us life he gives us faith he gives us repentance and so that's the second way in time that God separates us from the world he calls us out of it thirdly redemption Ephesians 1 7 in him in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So remember when Israel was saved from the plagues in Egypt? Kids, kids, look up. Remember when the kids were saved from the plagues in Egypt? What saved them? What did they do to their doorposts? Oh, come on. Yep, there you go. That's what I wanted. They put blood. That's a picture of what Christ would do. And so Christ redeemed us bought us, saving us from judgment. <laughs> Through his blood, we've been redeemed and our sins have been forgiven. And so we've been chosen before time, called in time, and redeemed out of the world by Jesus Christ. Sanctification. It's the fourth way. First Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So we're chosen before time, called in time, redeemed by the blood, and we are sanctified from the world. This is the one that James is talking about when he says, keep yourself unstained from the world. Paul says it like this in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Do not be conformed to what the world is. Instead, be transformed. What does it mean to be transformed? 
Well, transform, that word is where we get our English word for metamorphosis. And so kids, when a, when a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, what happens to it? Into a butterfly. That's right. Changes into a butterfly. The substance of the caterpillar is still there. The substance of the caterpillar is not eradicated, not destroyed, not pushed away. It's still there, but it's made into something, transformed into something that it wasn't before. <laughs> um, this, this word, transformation, is this also the same word that's used to describe the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Same word. So Mark chapter 7 is the cloud descends and there's this visible light and Jesus shines white before the people, his disciples. What they see is his resplendent glory. <laughs> Paul is using the same word to describe our sanctification. He uses it one other time. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Behold the glory of the Lord, the glory of Jesus. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And so metamorphosis. This is what the Spirit of God is doing in those who were chosen before time, called in time, and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He is working to transform us from one degree of glory, so it's progressive, it's not all at once, from one degree of glory to another. Which brings us to the number five, the fifth way that we are separated from the world, and that's glorification. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and we will be, what we will be has not yet appeared. What our full transformation looks like has not yet appeared because Christ has not yet come back. That's what he's talking about. So the second coming has not yet happened. But we know, he says after that, <laughs> so I absolutely love, so go back and read 1 John chapter 3. We know, I love that phrase, we know. We know that when he appears, Christ comes back, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. How do we know that we will be glorified? How do we know that we're going to be fully transformed and look like Jesus? Well, because God promises it, but also because that's why we were chosen before time. And, and that's why we were called in time. And that's why Christ redeemed us with his blood. And that's why we're being progressively sanctified towards that end. Not for our happiness. Not for our acceptance amongst the world. But to be glorified, to be like Christ for all eternity. It's an absolutely mind-boggling truth. We are not of the world, and this is what God is doing. And that's how Paul ends 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. This is God's doing. God chose us. God called us. God gave us life. God gave us faith. God gave us repentance. God is sanctifying us, and God will glorify us. When Christ comes back, we will be completely and absolutely separated from the world that hates him, that hates us, there will be no more man-centeredness. There will be no more values and thoughts and attitudes and priorities that are opposed to God. All of that garbage will be gone once and for all, for all eternity. This is God's doing, and that's our hope. That's our great hope. Not losing 10 pounds. The end to which all this separating has been done all moving towards that great end, a full and complete and final transformation. Is that your hope?
someone say something, is that your hope? Yes. Amen's better. Say amen. Just kidding. <laughs> I don't do that very often. But if I do, I mean it. Just kidding. If that is our hope, then listen to 1 John 3.3. 3. So I'll start in two. Beloved, we are God's children now, and we will be not as what we will be is has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then he says, and everyone who thus hopes, so everyone who just said, amen, purifies himself as he is pure. Let's put that in James's language. And everyone who thus hopes in the return of Christ, where they will be glorified, keeps himself unstained from the world. That is glorious. The question that you have, though, probably, is if God is the one who has separated us from the world, from eternity past to eternity future, why then do we need to worry about keeping ourselves unstained from the world? Now, well, just as God has ordained everything, such as our growth in becoming like Christ, He has also ordained the means through which that happens. So two passages that sort of explain this, ones that you've heard many times, especially here. 1 Peter 1, 3-7, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His very own excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And you can continue on reading that as you get home. 2 Peter 3, 1, 3-7. And then Philippians chapter 2. 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, that so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, two passages that tell us at least two things. First, this keeping ourselves unstained from the world takes effort. Paul says, work out your own salvation. Paul is not saying work for your salvation. That's all of God. But Paul is saying, now that you are saved, work it out with fear and and trembling, but you're not alone when he says, work it out. Our sanctification is not a monergistic work. We're not alone, Paul says. God works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, but we work, we labor, and we sacrifice. So that's first. Keeping ourselves unstained from the world takes effort. It takes sacrifice. That's one of the means by which God has ordained to help us become more like Jesus. Effort. Second, it takes using all of the, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so this is the means of grace. We mentioned so many times here. I mentioned these so many times because there's no hope for sanctification outside the means of grace. I don't care what they are. They're not helpful in transforming you after the image of Christ. They must be the means of grace. I have to remind myself of that all of the time. And so I remind you guys of that all of the time because I love you so very much. As I was praying this weekend for all of you, I, I just love you all so much. And even those who aren't here, they've neglected the, the, the gathering of the saints today for some reason. I'm just kidding. It's, it's fine to go visit family, whatever. But I just do. I love you so much. I do. Oh, I'll start crying. We don't want that. Anyway, Daniel make fun of me. So what, what, anyway, means of grace, what does that mean? So, so all of this, first this means that what we use has to be what God gives to us. So to keep ourselves unstained, in the world, unstained from the world doesn't mean isolation or building a commune, like I did on our property. <laughs> but 
God didn't give us that in order to make us more like Jesus. It's not wrong. Totally fine that we built a commune. <laughs> but I'm just kidding. I'll explain that if you have questions. But um, there are lots of good things that God has given us that are intended to make us more like Jesus. And it's okay to use them. Vacations are good, but not intended to make us more like Christ. It could, what we do on the vacation could, but politics, video games, some video games, sports, nachos. If the Finks were here, they'd have to eat nachos today, but... All of those things are not bad things. All of those things can be good things if they're used properly, but they're not given to us to make us more like Christ. So what are the means of grace that God has given us to make us more like Jesus? So this is where I close. I'm going to give you your big resolution, this big lifetime resolution number 13. <laughs> and then I'm going to give you some daily, yearly resolutions that are intended to support that big-time resolution. They work out, they're really actually lifetime, but think of them as resolutions you make now. And that's how we'll end. So we'll start with the big one. Lifetime resolution number 13, keep yourself unstained from the world. Keep yourself unstained from how the world thinks, from what the world loves, from what the world values. I can confidently say that this is a lifetime resolution for every single believer in this room. You are not to be conformed to that. This is a lifetime resolution for each and every true believer in this room. And qualify it further, it means that we are to be resolved not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed after the image of Jesus Christ. So we're all on board with that, right? This is our res- big-time, lifetime resolution. Big, broad resolution for you. Um, now, if that is yours, then there's going to be some, some, some to support that. So what are some relu- re- resolutions that support this big one? First, count the cost. In Matthew 16, 24, you want to follow Jesus? Take up your cross. Your sanctification to, to be your lifetime resolution, if your big broad goal is to become more like Christ, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. You're going to have to sacrifice. You will. Because as, as much as you don't want to admit it, or maybe it's not even in your mind, the world is really good at normalizing worldliness, and you've bought into it. You have. In some way, everybody in this room has believed the lie somehow. There is something in your life that is worldly, and you're waging war against your soul by agreeing with the world. We're immersed in it. If we're honest, it's rubbed off on us in some sense. So secondly, ask God to examine your heart. Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Before all of this, he's talking about how God knows every single thing. God formed him exactly as he is. He sees into his heart. He knows the words before they come off his lips. And he says to this God, search me. Lay me bare open and look inside and reveal to me any grievous way and then lead me in the way of everlasting. So ask yourself, where am I man-centered? Where am I me-centered? Am I man-centered or me-centered in how I work, in how I lead as a husband, in the way I'm a wife to my husband? Is it me-centered? How I am as a father, how I am as a mother? Do I make priorities for my family that are man-centered? And so kids, look, especially kids that have made professions of faith and been baptized before all of this congregation to say that I'm giving you a picture of what Christ has done to me, that he's raised me to life. All of you kids in this room who have made professions of faith, how are you man-centered? 
How are you me-centered? How do you choose yourself over the love of God? How do you choose yourself over submitting to your parents? Ask yourself those questions. If you've made a profession of faith, you need to ask these questions. Ask your parents, how have I been man-centered and me-centered? Wives, ask your husbands. Husbands, ask your wives. And when, or singles, ask your friends. And if you do, and they respond, don't be a baby and get, get offended by it. Be thankful. Be grateful for it. That's how they help you. And then after that, so first count the cost. Ask God to examine your heart. And when those things show, make barriers against those things that are conformed to the world. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, eye makes you stumble, cut it off. Hand makes you stumble, cut it off. That's a metaphor. <laughs> if you're prone to kicking your dog out of anger, don't come here next week with one foot. It's a metaphor, but it means something. It means remove whatever it is. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful because you've gotten used to it. It feels natural because of how the world has influenced you, but cut it off. Remove it as best you can from your life. So listen, in some way, you and me have been stained by the world. In some way, we think in ways that the world thinks about something. Again, it feels normal to us, not because it's good, but because we're just going with the current and everyone else is doing this and everyone else thinks this way. Take time. Please, as a pastor who loves you, please take time to search this out. Not because it's December 31st, because this is a big, broad resolution that stands over your life. And then make use of all that God has given you for godliness. Second Peter 1.3, what he has given you is everything. God has withheld nothing. That's the power of that verse. He's withheld nothing for life and godliness. He's given you everything that you need for that. And so ask yourself, what have you not been availing yourself of that's caused you to be conformed in your thinking to the world's thinking? That's caused you to be not transformed as you should be? The first is immerse yourself in God's Word. Remember, the Bible is a precision tool. I say this quite a bit as well. It's not a shotgun. It's a precise tool. It's a sword. Use it as a sword. And so wherever your weaknesses are, I'm almost done, I promise, but whatever your weaknesses are, your sins are, ways that you've conformed to the world, come to the elders. That's why we're here. Come to us that we may help you understand how to use the word to, to kill those things, those sins, to kill that conformity. We'll hold you accountable lovingly. Let us help you build a reading plan for this year that attacks all of those things. Let us do that for you. So to make the best use of this, you might have to change your habits. What gets in the way of you spending time in God's Word every single day? What, what gets in the way of that? Not getting up early enough? Then get up earlier. Make it a habit. That's how spiritual disciplines become natural to us, doing them every single day, if possible. So let us help you and make sacrifices to avail yourself of God's Word. And then second, draw near to the throne of grace. So, so pray, obviously, Hebrews 4, 
16 through 17, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You'll need grace and mercy for this. You'll need grace and mercy to keep yourself unstained from the world, and you find that in prayer. So let me ask you, how often do you pray? pray? Answer that question in your own head. How often do you pray? How often do you read the Word? How often? What do you pray about? What hinders your prayers? Maybe you're entirely selfish. If you're not praying regularly, you care very little about God's glory. You care very little about the good of others. You care very little about the good for you, your own good. I say that with as much love as I can. If you don't read God's word and you don't pray, you care very little about God. You have believed the lie, you've conformed yourself to the world, and you think it's all about you, and it's not. And so whatever those hindrances are, cut those things out. And then don't neglect corporate worship. Hebrews 10.25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of sun, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We can pray at home, we can read at home, but there's something very special about us gathering together to do that. There's something very powerful about that. The very beginning, just Adam, God looks and sees it's not good for man to dwell alone. He follows that up and he says, let us make you know, man in our own, or before that, let us make man in our own, own image. And so that's referring to the Trinity. Something very beautiful about how the Trinity is united, rejoices in fellowship. And so, yes, we can read at home, we can pray at home, but, but there's, there's something about us coming together as God's people, as one body with many parts, to worship Him together, to sit under the Word together, to pray together. So if you're neglecting this, something in the world is more important to you. That's just, that's just the answer. That's just the, the way it is. That's just truth. There's no way, other ways you can describe that or answer that. I understand some people work, and I get that. That's, that's fine. We're not that kind of Sabbatarians. But gathering together where we can, as much as we possibly can, removing everything in our life that gets in the way of that that doesn't need to be there. Gathering together. This is a means of grace for you. This is one of the big three primary means of grace for you. Reading, praying, gathering together in worship. And so go to a church that's a good church that preaches the Bible, that talks about sin, that points you to Christ and causes and asks you to rest in Christ, not work to earn something. Find a church that preaches verse by verse through the Bible, where they have elders that, that understand their role and walk with you and plead with you and pray with you and read with you. So immerse yourself in God's word. Throw yourself the throne of grace, don't neglect corporate worship, and then serve one another. That's the verse before the one we just read. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. There's something about looking away from ourselves into others that is contrary to the world. Serve one another. We'll get your eyes off yourself and upon the needs of others. And that's the first part of James chapter 1, verse 27. So, for believers in this room, for professing believers in this room. There may be professing believers in this room who aren't believers in this room. There may be. 
If God has not done this work that draws you to Him, not perfectly, but draws you to His Word, long for the pure milk of the Word, that draws you to Him in prayer because you're communicating with the God of the universe as your Father, and doesn't draw you to His people, you're drawn to people outside of the world or outside of the church, you might not be a Christian. I'm not saying definitively. I can't see in your heart, but those are not evidences. And those are not reasons that why you would walk away and say, yes, I believe I'm a Christian. No, you can't have assurance if that's your life right now. You might be saved, but you can't have assurance of it. Assurance is subjective. And so if that's you, investigate. Ask God to investigate. And hear the gospel again. Jesus Christ is God, dwelling for all eternity in glory, worshipped, came, took upon flesh, lived perfectly, never, ever, ever sinning, not a hint of it, then died on the cross for our sins, not his own because he didn't commit them, was raised three days later, 40 days later, goes, ascends up into the heavens and sits down, now rules over everything. That's the gospel. And that's what you must believe. You don't rest in your works or doing all the things that I said to become better, then God will save you. No, this, Christ's works, that's what saves you. So whether you're a professing believer who might not, or an unbeliever, maybe you know you're an unbeliever, a child, an adult who's here today, I'm pleading with you, I'm begging you, believe the gospel. Life is not about you. Don't believe the lie. Life's not about you and your happiness and your, your pleasure and whatever it is. It's not. It's about God and His glory. All that He's doing through His Son. All that He's doing in us through His Spirit to glorify Himself. So that's you. I say this every week. Rarely does anyone take me up on this. Please let me talk to you. If that's you, please, please let me talk to you about this Christ. And believers, just do everything that I said before this. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for uh, your son coming to do all that we could not do. Certainly everything we could not do. We thank you for a salvation that is all by grace, given as a free gift to those who could not ask for it who could not earn it. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would impress upon our minds not this world, but the next, that you would put your glory as a burden upon our hearts, not our own, and give us the strength as a corporate body laboring together and to strive to align our lives with this big goal we talked about today and all the big goals that sit over our life, Father, we pray that you would do that for your sake, for our sake. We pray for the one here today, the many who are today, I don't know how many, who do not know you. Father, we pray that you would save them. In Christ's name we pray, amen.